bienvenidos a Monarchast. Oh my god, that's why you wanted to do that. I love it. <laughs> yeah, that's the extent of my Spanish, everybody. But I thought since we're traveling to the kingdom of Spain today, we'd welcome you in the appropriate fashion. I Did Me you get Claire. your Castilian lisp going? No, I, I cannot do that at all, so forget it. Uh, I took German in school, so I'm just going to stick with English today. I'm Allie. We're going to, yeah, the rest of this will yeah. be in English. And before so. we go any further, I want to head off any royal oops. We are actually technically talking about the kingdoms of Castile and Aragon today. Yes. Spain, yes. as we know and it, did not exist. <laughs> Yes, this is not the house of Bourbon. Or bourbon. That, I, I always just say current, bourbon, bourbon like the, you know, like bourbon. Oh, I guess I'm pronouncing it the way I think they would pronounce it. But yeah, that's that's not who we're talking about. Yeah. So this is, as Ali just said, prehistoric Spain. <laughs> well, in a way, not prehistoric. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're basically getting to know the in-laws today, talking about Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain, uh, famous in-laws to Henry VIII. And mother and father of Catherine of Aragon. And boy, they were Europe's power couple of the era. Oh, yeah, they were. I mean, remember when we were talking about that story with the Spanish royal family and their Easter drama? Yes. And I mentioned that the Spanish royal family brings the drama like no other. Hopefully we give you a little taste of that tonight. I hope so. Like, unfortunately, I sort of condensed the like family drama section of this, but maybe we'll expand a little bit. But before we get into it, um, I do, I don't really, I guess it's not gossip, but I read something online today that I thought was really interesting because about the modern English royal family, because it relates to our episode on George the first, George of Hanover. So I remember talking in that episode I think I briefly mentioned that George I and his son, George II, did not really get along. And in fact, Mm -hmm. they kind of either carried on or began this family tradition of the Hanover's fathers and sons really just not liking each other. And so George I, to kind of stick it to his son, actually instituted a policy where the reigning monarch technically has custody of all the royal grandchildren. And he did this as a way to gain control over the life and future of George III so that George II didn't really control his education or his future personality or any of that. And that's actually a rule that's still in place. Did we not talk about that when we talked about... Oh, I guess we didn't really go into details when we talked about Diana and Charles. But that's why um, Charles had custody of the boys. No, he's not the monarch. Yeah, but they lived with him. Well, actually, so when they... With the royal family. When they got a divorce, there were no custody agreements because technically their royal guardian is Queen Elizabeth. Right. Yeah. So, but that's what I mean. That's why they lived with their father. For If I, if I recall correctly, they were mostly based with him. It didn't really matter at the time because I think they were in boarding school. Yeah, but um, I, I, I was reading about that today because I guess... Now there's all this talk about, you know, William and Kate technically have custody of their own children because the rule actually doesn't specifically account for great-grandchildren, but that in the event where Charles becomes king, he will technically be the custodian of his grandchildren, although they don't really, in modern times, stick too strongly to that rule. Like, 
you know, they're, yeah, they're allowed to live with their say. parents and all that stuff. But it, I just like didn't know that. And I thought that was a really nice tie back to our George the First episode. Oh, those Han- Hanoverians were little monsters. Yeah. They, talk about family drama, right? <laughs> I, I suppose it's difficult when you have a child and you know that they can only reach their full destiny upon your death. But even so. Yeah, I'm sure it doesn't that's... make for easy parent-child relationships, but sometimes I think they take it a little bit far. <laughs> it's a little intense. Yeah. But anyway, like we said, speaking of family drama, we'll circle it back to a family that really knew how to bring the drama um, actually two families that really knew how to bring the drama, although technically they're related. So anyway, so we're going to talk about Isabella and Ferdinand. And you might be wondering right off the bat why I'm saying Isabella and Ferdinand instead of the more common Ferdinand and Isabella. And that's because actually today I'm, I think we're going to put more focus on Isabella instead of Ferdinand because she has been belatedly recognized as the brains of the operation and the true architect of many of their achievements, either good or bad. And Ferdinand's actions and style of rule after her death sort of illuminated who was really wearing the so-called pants in that family. So Hmm. I want to give her her belated due and we're going to rearrange their names a little bit. This is my... Sounds good to me. My stance for women. (laughs) So, yeah, let's find out a little bit who they were. Um, The time that they're ruling is the 15th century of Spain, or what would become Spain, but at the time was a collection of kingdoms on the Iberian Peninsula. And it's an interesting time. It's kind of straddling two different eras. You know, they've got Europe just coming out of this medieval era of warfare and I think the enlightenment might have happened at this point but moving into what we're going to know to be the renaissance in this era of humanities and culture and learning and their reign at the time when they're living sort of straddles both sides of that so it's a really interesting time for Spain but let's talk about the key players the marriage of Isabella and Ferdinand was politically important for Spain for we're, you know what I'm gonna just interject here and say we're gonna just gonna say Spain I think that might be easier what yeah. do you think no I yeah, yeah I think I think we know we've established it's not political Spain the way we know it today but it's a mouthful I think you can look at it as when we talked about this a little bit when we did our intro of Henry VIII you have Spain and France essentially on the continent and they're the big powers and Spain is not like France well, even France, to a certain extent, I think, had these little dukedoms oh, certainly. and yeah. principalities. But Spain, it was a really long time before you see one country, essentially, if you think about it that way. It was a hard place to control. And I'll talk about that a little more in a bit. But anyway, at this time, the two major kingdoms of Spain are Castile and Aragon. And the marriage of Isabella and Ferdinand served to unite these two kingdoms in what was known as a personal unification by marriage, but it actually wasn't a true political unification. The kingdoms were ruled separately, but they were ruled together during their marriage and then again under Charles I, their grandson. So isn't it true, and I read this and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought this was really interesting. So Castile allowed for female succession. That would be Isabella taking over as queen 
regnant, like queen in her own right. Mm-hmm. Aragon, I don't believe, had that tradition. But what's interesting is that because she was queen, he was king of Castile. And essentially, they could act for each other. They had equal authority. They were both recognized as monarch in Castile. But in Aragon, she was only queen consort, which is more typically what we've talked about on the throne of England, where you have a queen, but she doesn't really have any political power. So I believe that is true to an extent. And a lot of that actually came from the power dynamic in their marriage where, you know, in some ways it was a really modern marriage, but she is still a woman in the 15th century. And to make her husband feel better about the fact that she was a queen in her own right, she actually deferred a lot of public power to him. And so that might be a reason for that as well. And there are some instances of queens in Castile, but it actually wasn't as strong of a precedent as you might think. And so there were a couple examples that she would often point to to prove that you know she was capable of doing this. But she really had to work to convince people that having her as her brother's successor was a good idea. Um, and actually she, to in a sense, idolized Joan of Arc and kind of used her as a model as well, which I thought was really interesting. But Isabella, so she's born in 1451 and she grows up second in line to the Castilian throne behind her older half-brother. Um, alternately, he's known as Henry IV or Enrique IV, and I think we'll just keep with the Spanish today and call him Enrique. And her younger brother, Alfonso. So once Alfonso is born, she's pushed even further in the line of succession. And Enrique and Alfonso actually embark on this struggle for the throne because Enrique is a very weak ruler. The nobles don't like him and they start to back Alfonso. Well, and Enrique couldn't have. Well, right. So he had one child, but there's a question. There's a question of legitimacy. (laughs) The paternity. So that's a problem as well. And Alfonso dies in 1468 of publicly what they called the plague, but he was very possibly poisoned. And Isabella at this point had backed Alfonso. She was much closer with her younger brother. And so upon his death, her relations with Enrique were pretty strained. But because of this issue of succession where his daughter was of questionable paternity, he really had no choice and he ended up naming Isabella heir presumptive. And when he eventually died in 1474, she marched, marches into town and declares herself queen. She's not even going to wait. As you do. Yeah, of course. And then even further, after the birth of her first daughter, she has her daughter declared heiress to the crown of Castile, which further legitimizes Isabella's own throne because her brother's lack of a legitimate heir had ultimately been his downfall. And now his daughter, they did try to bring her back, right? So I was reading, it was sort of interesting. At one point you have these two would-be queens kind of duking it out. And no one's really happy with either option because you've got women, their claims weren't that strong. Yes, and there is a faction of people who think that Isabella doesn't have a legitimate claim to the throne or that they they would they would prefer to believe that her niece is in fact legitimate and they went so far as to have her niece Juana marry Alfonso V of Portugal who then decided to invade Castile and claim the throne for himself because of course Portugal and Castile had a historic ongoing tension over who really deserved to rule in this area 
And so there is a war that breaks out and it lasts from May 1475 to March 1476. And the way it ends is actually really interesting. So there's a culminates in the Battle of Toro where both sides actually claim victory, but it's kind of unclear that anyone has an outright win. But the Portuguese forces just disbanded after the battle and they left Castile because Ferdinand sends word to Castile and other foreign kingdoms that the Portuguese had been defeated. So they ultimately win by a PR campaign. Which I think is a great way <laughs> to do it. A little... <laughs> yeah. All right, here's our press release. Yeah. So like once Castile has won. So once the <laughs> once the like the army hears that they've supposedly lost, they're just like, all right, guys, let's pack up, let's go home. <laughs> So that's how Isabella ultimately secures her succession. And then, of course, when her son Juan is born in 1478, that further legitimizes her throne because she's now delivered Spain a legitimate male heir. So at that point, everybody's like, cool, we're going to go with you. So her husband, Ferdinand, is Ferdinand II of Aragon. By the time he married Isabella, he has already been crowned as King of Sicily, and he's the heir apparent to the crown of Aragon. So he's in really good standing, and due to Isabella's issues with her brother, you know, she really needs to have a strong contender for her husband. He's he's in line for his own throne, he's ruling a foreign throne, and he's a pretty good match. He also, like Isabella, is an unlikely monarch. He was not supposed to rule, but his older half-siblings also died, again, possibly by poison, and he was his father's favorite son. So throughout his entire life, he sort of edged closer and closer to the actual throne. And they were cousins, but how they got married is also a little bit interesting. So when Isabella was named heir presumptive to her brother, they made a bargain where she agreed not to marry anyone without his consent, and he agreed not to force her to marry against her will. Because of course, by being named heir presumptive to the throne of Castile, she's now the ultimate marriage bargaining chip, and he doesn't want to give that control up, right? But... Because of this, her brother soon goes back on her word, on his word, and he betrothes her to a series of men, but ultimately to Alfonso V of Portugal, this man that we briefly talked about who ended up marrying her niece, Juana. Um, he was already trying to get into that marriage market with Isabella as well. So when she finds out that this is happening, she's like, no, no. She takes matters into her own hands, secretly arranges to marry her cousin, and her ultimately her first fiance, Ferdinand, because they had been betrothed when they were children before hmm. Ferdinand's father decides that his political star is rising and he doesn't need this Castilian engagement for his son. And also in the meantime, she was potentially very temporarily either betrothed to Edward IV of England before he married Elizabeth Woodville and then even possibly to his oh. brother, Richard III. So Spain's been searching for this English alliance for a while. Kind of interesting. Isn't it? Yeah. And I love that she just takes it into her own hands because she's like, look, you keep trying to set me up with these old men. I'm not going to take it. And yeah. yeah, so she reaches out to Ferdinand. He actually travels into Castile dressed up as a servant. They essentially elope. The formal betrothal takes place in October of 1469. They're very quickly married after that. Although they did actually, much like some of their children, need a papal dispensation 
um, because they were cousins. So um, this was... There's that dispensation again. And actually, theirs was also a little bit problematic. So it's presented to them by Cardinal Rodrigo Borgia, who is pretty famous. So he's the future Pope Alexander VI. And he presents them a bull that was supposedly done by the now-dead Pius II. And there was some drama with their dispensation, but the important thing is that ultimately they have a very legal claim to marry each other. So I read that they didn't have one when they got married. No, not when they, they got just married. Told just that they well, did. this is the thing. So this Cardinal Borgia tells them that they have one. They take his word for it, but they kind of discover that might not be true. But they did ultimately secure an actual dispensation just a few years after their daughter was born. <laughs> Hey, better late than never. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this family's having all kinds of trouble with their papal dispensations. <laughs> kind of makes me question the legitimacy of that papal bull that Catherine right? of Aragon presented yeah. to Henry and said, oh no, our marriage was totally legit. I got two. Well, this was the problem, <laughs> right? Is they're being presented with these papal bulls, but think about the timing. Like it's probably incredibly difficult to determine the authenticity because you're basing it entirely on a on a wax seal that can be forged of course like if anybody has access to it so in any case they get married and nobody really questions it and theirs was I think I briefly mentioned before a bit of a modern marriage you know they did each have their own crowns that they were either heir to or already running and so they did have a essentially a prenup to lay down the terms of who would rule each kingdom Um, each kingdom was ultimately run as a separate entity although they did advise with each other and and as you said Ferdinand had a little bit more power in Castile than she had in Aragon so that's a little background on who we're dealing with and you know to talk about the family drama I really skipped over this but both of their paths to the throne were full of intrigue and drama and poison and plague and who knows you know I mean these people in Spain were not messing around with power it's a little bit like the real life Game of Thrones to be honest but if you're interested in that uh we're not gonna talk about it today sorry (laughs) okay so why are Isabella and Ferdinand so renowned right you know I mentioned that they are ruling at a time of transition they have both medieval ancient concerns and also they're looking forward to the future and before we get into this i think a lot of people listening even if they don't know the specifics of ferdinand and isabella they know the events yes that we're about to talk about right i mean everything everybody's heard of the inquisition voyages to america all kinds of stuff yeah so it's kind of interesting because even I, for whatever reason, I, I learned. I mean, I learned about them in Spanish class in high school because when you when you take Spanish, you learn about Ferdinand and Isabella because they're the most notorious rulers to come out of Spain. But it's kind of funny because we learned all about the Inquisition, and I was thinking about this earlier, and I was like, "Oh yeah, that was them." <laughs> so it's kind of like anything you associate with Spain, you're kind of like, "Oh, it's probably those two. Yes, and they're probably behind. I'm it. glad you mentioned the Inquisition because what I'm about to talk about sort of sets the stage for why they would even want to do that. Mm-hmm. So the Spanish Peninsula, the Iberian Peninsula, is at the time of Isabel and Ferdinand, it's a harsh place to live. I mean, the the terrain is hot, it's dusty, it's hard to hold on to. You know, you've got the Pyrenees, you've got these like craggy mountain passes and like open plains. And yet, 
We've got balls running okay, the streets. Yes. Well, I don't know if they had that at the time. And despite all of this, you've got centuries of different people fighting for control of this land. In 711 AD, Muslim armies actually invade the Iberian Peninsula. And this is interesting because Europe at this time is being invaded from the south by Muslim armies. And this is also concurrent with, at the time, Northern Europe and England are being invaded by like Vikings and Saxons. And Europe is sort of being assaulted from all sides, not uncoincidentally at the time of the fall of the Roman Empire. You know, Rome is losing its grip on the continent and other people are taking advantage. So this is happening in Spain. The Muslim armies invade in 711 AD, wrest control from the Visigoths who had controlled the peninsula after the fall of Rome. And they just take over. You know, they're known pejoratively, actually, so we're not really going to use this term too much, but they are known as the Moors. They came from North Africa, and they brought their religion and their culture with them. So they bring Islam to very Christian Spain. So that's a problem for the people, of course. But these armies just come in and take over everything, although they never really managed to establish a central government. And so almost immediately, the Christian rulers begin this concerted, centuries-long effort to reclaim their lands. And so this means that by the time Isabella and Ferdinand are in power, the only Muslim stronghold remaining in the Iberian Peninsula is Granada, which is mm. sort of the southern coast of Spain. And so the Iberian Peninsula is Spain and Portugal? Yes, but okay. we're talking just, mostly just... about Spain at this point. So Granada is the only stronghold remaining. And this, like I said, this invasion into the Iberian Peninsula is not isolated. This is, you know, mirrored in other parts of Europe as the Ottoman Turks are expanding their empire. This culminates in 1453 with this really shocking event and demoralizing incident where Constantinople falls to the Turks. Isabella is two years old oh. when this happens. And since Constantinople had been the capital of the Christian Byzantine Empire, essentially other outside of the Vatican, the Christian capital of Europe, the loss of it. So the Holy Roman Empire? Uh, I believe the Holy Roman Empire grows out of the Byzantine Empire, but okay. we're talking about the empire of Justinian and, you know, the great and glorious Constantinople. And that empire had continued to decay, and that's why ultimately the Ottomans were able to invade and sack Constantinople, but still, this is sort of the last stronghold, and the loss of Constantinople really shakes the European Christian lands, like, to their core. So this fear that... And they never got it back, right? Nope. It's still known as Istanbul. <laughs> no, they, they did not ever get it back. Um, yeah, I, I'm just... I know. <laughs> Actually, I was just checking to make sure that it is Istanbul. <laughs> yeah, it's Istanbul is Constantinople, Constantinople is Istanbul. But so this fear that Europe could, you know, completely and totally fall to, you know, the infidels, as it were, this drove a lot of decision making by a lot of different rulers and countries and for Isabella, especially. I mean, she was a devout Catholic, a very religious person. And to have this huge event happened when she's two years old and then to subsequently for the rest of her life hear these reports of what the Turks are up to definitely had an impact. So Isabella and Ferdinand so decide this like <laughs> centuries of conflict. Yeah. And uh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but it's just funny that we're talking about these people who lived like 600 years ago. Well, <laughs> and... you know, I have to tell you, honestly, reading about some of this, I was like, 
history is just cyclical. So much of this yeah. sounded so familiar. <laughs> I mean, people going on crusade and, you know, jihad and all this stuff. And it's, it's honestly shocking how little we learn um, and what people will do. But anyway, <laughs> so Isabella and Ferdinand decide that, you know what? We want to completely eradicate the Muslims from Spain, we're or the Muslim control of Spain. So we're going to finish this reconquest, um, known in Spain as the Reconquista. Is that how's my yes, sort of good pronunciation? That's pretty good. Yeah. So they're going to finish this reconquering, and they're going to do this by reconquering Granada. So they do ultimately succeed, and the reclamation of Granada is this huge victory for Castile that in some ways is seen as making up for the loss of Constantinople. You know, 50 years before or 40 years before it, Europe suffers that or Christian Europe suffers this massive moral defeat. And so this, this reclamation of Granada is just this really good news. And so Ferdinand and Isabella embark on this. Um, at the time, the Emirate of Granada, this last stronghold, is held by the Nasrid dynasty, and they've been in power since the mid-13th century. So they're managing to cling on to their lands, even as the rest of sp the Spanish kingdoms are incrementally recovered over this 500-year period. The final effort to regain control is launched in 1482, and this war took 10 years. So it's a relatively small part of Spain, and Granada's leadership also never really presented a united front. And also the Ottomans sort of wrote off the Iberian Peninsula as a lost cause. They had bigger fish to fry. But and it still took 10 it years? It still took 10 years. Because Spain at this point, because of this history of the Muslim invasion and the Reconquista, it's dotted with these fortresses, like these castle strongholds all across. So every time they want well, to retake a... Isn't that where Castile gets its name? I think so. Yeah. From all the castles? Yeah. So every time they want to take a town or a city, they've got to, you know, mount like a siege against it. So it takes a pretty <laughs> long time. But they, they've got friends helping them. They recruit soldiers from many of the European Christian kingdoms and countries. Um, Spain at this time is pretty progressive with its weapons so they outfit all these armies with modern weapons and they begin this slow reconquest so ultimately after nine years the siege of granada begins in 1491 and at the end of that year the last nasrid ruler muhammad the 12th surrenders they enter granada on january 2nd 1492 they get those keys to the city the main mosque is reconsecrated as a church and later that year, they signed the Treaty of Granada. And I want to mention this treaty because they very specifically in this treaty pledged to allow the remaining Muslims and Jews of Granada to just continue living in peace. Like Granada now belongs to the Christian kings and queens of Spain, but the people who live there aren't going to be forced to become Christian. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, <laughs> that is not what ends up happening. They did not keep their word. Um, by 1492, the Alhambra Decree orders Jews to either convert within three months or leave. And later, Muslims are ordered to do the same after a Muslim uprising in 1499 and the breaking of this Treaty of Granada in 1502. But we'll talk about why that happened in a little bit. But a lot of this is all happening. Spain is encountering this, you know, great victory. They've finally reclaimed all of their land. 
But the rest of the Christian European world is still under heavy threat from the Ottomans. You know, like I said, Constantinople falling in 1453 is this huge blow. And the Turks don't stop there. They're spreading out across continental Europe, trying to, you know, expand their territory. And the way they do it is extremely violent. They're enslaving Christians. Women, basically, if you get captured by the Ottomans, your social life is over. You are going into some rich nobleman's harem and you are not coming out. You know, so many people were lost to history in this way because their names are changed, they're forcibly converted. It's not a it's not a happy time and warfare. And so this continuing threat means that these Catholic monarchs of Spain decide we really need to make sure that this reconquest does not go to waste and we need to ensure that our own kingdoms have religious unity and that we're not in any way threatened to fall to these Muslims. So <laughs> they have a plan. <laughs> Isabella and Ferdinand embark on this policy of religious unity for Castile, and it's called the Inquisition. This is not a new idea. This is something that was done by the Romans. Before them, there's a whole set of rules that they follow on how to carry it out. Um, you know, the Catholic Church has carried out inquisitions before. This is not anything new. And it begins in, in these Spanish kingdoms as a means to ensure like I said, Catholic unity, and importantly, religious sincerity. You know, people who convert, they want to make sure that they're really sincere in their conversion. Um, but ultimately, it comes to scrutinize Jews, homosexuals, people of Muslim descent, Protestants, you know, once the Protestant Reformation gets going, divorcees, political enemies, or pretty much anyone accused of unconventional thinking. So it's an extremely powerful force. And what's interesting is that it's it's also known as the Holy Office. So, you know, always has this association as like a holy crusade. And it's also very popular with the people because the people believed it was necessary after years of civil unrest, right? Um, as long as you're not as long Jewish, as as long as you Muslim, are a Protestant conventional, <laughs> lifelong, you know, generations going back Catholic, then you're fine and you're totally on board with this. And we'll see. Like it doesn't start out as severe as it ultimately became, but it does start out sort of roughly at the same time as this final conquest of Granada, and they sort of play into each other a little bit. So Isabella actually launches this fairly reluctantly. You know, she's a very religious woman. She believes that it's important to unite Spain under one religion, but she also thinks that the problem isn't so much like heresy. It's just that maybe people don't know better. Unfortunately, though, she's talked into this by a bunch of clerics in Seville who believe that Heresy is like widespread, it's jeopardizing souls, and it's undermining security. And their first concern was with a group of people known as conversos. So these are people that mm. have converted from Judaism or Islam, or their parents have converted. So they're so-called like first-generation Christians, or maybe they just converted as children. And so, but the, these clerics are concerned that these people are really bringing something bad to the Catholic faith. Um, but the timing isn't really an accident, right? Like this is coinciding with the onset of war with Granada. So suspect loyalties are way less tolerated. It's a time of war. You're specifically at war with a people of a different religion. And meanwhile, these news accounts of these Ottoman conquests are fall, or, you know, flooding in to the kingdom. And these reports have 
tales of insincere Christian converts that are aiding the Turks and letting them into these cities. Um, and this is also something that happened during the reconquest. You know, they would have people who claimed to be Christian converts secretly aiding the Nasrids in their fight against Castile. So this obsessive concern with religious treachery is growing in Europe, and Spain is not immune to this. So, and also, you know, a different side of this too is that the Spaniards are traditionally, they very highly value religious orthodoxy. Like this is not a place where different religions are particularly welcome. I mean, under the Muslims, you know, both Muslims and Jews manage to live fairly well together. The Jews just pay a tax to the Muslim rulers and they're kind of left alone. But this is a time where religion and the state are extremely closely intertwined. So the intermingled like religious and secular authority means that monarchs assume their throne by the will of God. And so if you question God, you're questioning the royal legitimacy. And on the flip side, kings and queens were widely considered to be spiritually responsible for the guardianship of their people's lives and souls. So if they're failing to root out heresy in their kingdom, then they're putting the monarch's soul at risk as well. It's not really a healthy dynamic. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, at the outset of this, you know, many of Isabella's personal trusted religious advisors are against an inquisition. A few of them were actually conversos themselves. Um, but Isabella is also vulnerable to suggestion at this point. You know, she's only had one child in her marriage and it's been a, and she's a daughter who's now seven. And so she's concerned that her infertility is a sign of God's disfavor. So she's open to ideas of how to fix that. I mean, this is the kind of thinking that we saw with Henry, right? It's just mm. because people don't know how biology works, they go to all yeah. sorts of different <laughs> conclusions. Just, I, I just have to be more religious. Right. That's we'll fix it. And also, as I mentioned, this is coinciding with the war with Granada. So it's possible that Isabella also just needs the support of the old Christians of Andalusia and Granada to help her win the war. Or maybe she thinks it's the only way to protect Christian Spain against the Turks, or she has this misguided concern for the spiritual well-being of her people. But in any case, in 1478, Pope Sixtus IV grants permission to establish an inquisitional, like an inquisitional panel and so this gives the sovereigns the right to select three bishops, archbishops, or priests to serve as like head inquisitors. Um, but at this time, Isabella, you know, she's not really into the idea of this heavy questioning of people's faith. And so she's really stressing, let's just educate the people about any possible lapses in religious education, right? Like instead of punishing them, let's make sure they actually understand what's required of them to be successful convert conversos, right? So two more years go by after this initial permission is granted and nothing is really done. But unfortunately, in the meantime, word spreads that the monarchs are considering this. You know, conversos are terrified of what might happen. And so a few of them speak out criticizing the king and queen for even considering an inquisition. But this backfires and has the impact actually of leading them to then initiate a formal inquisition and two senior inquisitors are set up in September 1480. Their names are Mendoza and Torquemada. Um, and they establish a base in Seville where it was believed that religious insincerity was at its worst. So this thing is, in, it's, it's going. It's like 
you criticize the monarchs, you're going to get your inquisition. <laughs> and Right, because you're criticizing God, right? Exactly, so. yes. Yeah, see, it's that's how this like dysfunctional cycle works. So at first, like I said, Isabella's not really into these harsh measures. She's stressing education at this point still. But Ferdinand, he's got no issue with this. Like, he's actually, like, maybe not so religiously invested in the Inquisition, but he's recognizing the dollar signs, right? Like, <laughs> this is something that's going to be really good economically for the crown. It's going to return a lot of this money that they've just spent on this war on Gr with Granada. All of this is set up, and the Spaniards, do they just really take this Inquisition to a whole new level? You know, there's the traditional methods of you arrest people, you question them, if they seem sincere in their apology, you kind of let them go. If they don't, you continue. Maybe eventually you punish them. But during Isabella's lifetime, inquisitors killed 168 people in Toledo, which was the religious capital. And as this inquisition continues for 300 years, over its full run, hundreds of people are burned as heretics, at least 1,000 probably, and maybe as many as 2,000, depending on how you count. Is that 300 continuous years or do they stop start stop I, start? i'm not sure it's continuous but the inquisition on some form continues for 300 years and actually ends up exported to the new world as well ah oh, fantastic yes. um and these numbers are interesting because many people were actually tried in absentia after fleeing or dying and so if they fled then they would burn them in effigy and if they were already dead they would dig up their bones and burn them they, they honestly, from everything I've heard about the Inquisition, those numbers seem really low. Yes. But... So they can't be real. I think these are confirmed kills. Yeah. <laughs> confirmed. <laughs> yeah. In Castile, you know, this is really being done as the, you know, people are doing these horrible things, but they... They think they mean well. But in Aragon, Ferdinand allows this, you know, he's... Like I said, this is a cash grab for him. He's really letting it get out of hand. And actually, in 1482, the Pope is protesting the Aragonese version of the Inquisition, charging that essentially the sovereign is just after money. Um, and this is because the sovereign, through this panel, has the permission to collect any goods or money confiscated from accused people. And this money goes to the royal treasury. So it's actually creating a financial incentive to find people guilty. And actually, even if people are tried and not found guilty, it's really hard to recover what was taken from them when they were arrested. So it's an impossible situation for many people. Many of the accused were actually poor and didn't have anything to be confiscated, so families lost everything. And also many of these people that were accused were simply Christians who had maybe retained some traditional Jewish customs when they converted, or they're entertaining family, like visiting family who are still Jewish, so they're cooking kosher for them or something, or they've converted after childhood and they didn't really have proper religious instruction. Like, this is what Isabella was initially worried about, right? Like, it's not so much that people are insincere, but they just don't know better. Um, although, Well, yeah, they just say, yes, I'm Christian. I'm going to go home and light my menorah. Like, they just don't... Yeah see they don't see anything wrong with that and and it, it yeah. is true that there were some insincere conversos who converted for financial gain you know um many people rose in society and found their economic situation improved upon converting um, because they weren't faced with the stigma of not being christian but also 
many people who didn't convert were also, you know, it's the typical story of Jews are allowed to be moneylenders and people don't like the people who come and collect your money. So a lot of prejudice fed into that as well. Um, mm. And also after the fall of Granada, the Inquisition only really gets harsher. In March of 1492, Isabella and Ferdinand order the Jews who had previously been spared from most of the Inquisition to convert or be expelled. Like up until now, the Jews hadn't really been affected because their only concern are the people who were claiming to be Christian. But they came to feel that the Jews were actually tempting those who had converted to abandon Christianity and risk their own salvation. So couldn't have that. So it just gets more and more intense. Yes. And like I said, ultimately, the after a couple Muslim uprisings, they get the same treatment. Isabella, though ultimately felt that the Inquisition, she, you know, she did, she didn't really initially like the methods, but she came to approve them. You know, she was a very religious woman and sometimes considered to be harsh. And so maybe she felt like a harsh punishment was needed. So she ultimately came to view it as having unified Spain. She'd quelled any internal religious dissent. And she also thought of it as one of the largest and most successful forced conversions in Spanish history. Yay! I guess the ends justified the means. I mean, it's so interesting to me how religion is not viewed as voluntary, right? It is either you convert and save your soul or we're going to kill you, you know? (laughs) Well, that's what you get. I mean, that's what you get when you have this system of government where you have someone sitting at the top who's in their mind, ordained by God. So there is no separation of church and state. It's just... It's the monarch's moral duty to help you save your soul. And and the ironic thing is it becomes this self-perpetuating machine where they force people to convert and then they persecute them for an insincere conversion. Well, <laughs> what do you mean? You didn't really want to be a Christian. What, we held you at sword point and you just pretended to convert? Well, we must arrest you. You know, I mean, it's really tragic but also i mean fascinating from a distance that's what i mean that 2000 number just seems too small well a lot of people fled rather than convert or be killed i mean a lot of people died indirectly sure wasn't 200,000. no it was these are the people that were burned at the stake oh yeah like more people died like they were starved or tortured to death or they fled and were killed in the course of fleeing i mean you know a lot of people also didn't let the refugees in. I mean, uh, history repeating itself. Like, Portugal let them in for a time, but then the Portuguese also began to fear that they had angered God, so they made them leave. Um, Some of the North African countries were resistant to letting them in and also would, like, murder people because rumors spread that they had swallowed gold on their way out of Spain, and so they would, like, cut people open to try to find the gold. Um, In fact, the only safe haven they really found was either, ironically, in the Ottoman Empire where they could just, like, Jews could just pay a tax and live in their own faith and, like, kind of be second-class citizens, but at least they could live. Um, Or actually, the Pope granted them asylum in papal lands. Hmm. Yep. So they all went to the Vatican. (laughs) Kind of strange. (laughs) Vatican's not very big. So um, a lot of people died in that way, but uh, those are the numbers of, like, people burned as heretics. So... Oh, okay. You're right, and that, that, that is an extremely sense. low number, but I was, I mean, that was like the ultimate death, right? Or punishment, I suppose. So, this is all happening, you know, 
they've taken Granada back, they've embarked on this religious insanity, and now we're going to bring Spain into the future. <laughs> so, you know, Isabella is a very forward-thinking queen, you know, more so than her husband, and she's realizing, hey, this is kind of a time of exploration and discoveries at sea, and we should really get in on this for Spain. And fortunately for Spain, she was maybe not friends, but she was allied with a pope who also recognized these opportunities. And so they've got this whole tension going on with Portugal, right? Like I've mentioned before, the Portuguese king kind of tried to come for the throne of Castile. There's always tension on the border. And it doesn't help that Portugal is also, much like Spain, deciding, hey, let's go explore. And so... They've got this series of wars, you know, attempts by the king to get the crown, and finally they all decide, you know what, enough is enough. You, Isabella and Ferdinand, you guys can keep Castile and Aragon. The Portuguese king is thinking, hey, I'm going to keep Portugal, but I'm also going to keep all of these lands that we've explored down in the Atlantic. So in order to gain peace, Isabella and Ferdinand essentially negotiate themselves out of the right to navigating and getting any commercial interests for any areas of the Atlantic Ocean south of the Canary Islands. If we're thinking about geography, basically this means like anything south of like Spain and Portugal, Spain doesn't get. So Portugal's sailing down the coast of Africa, discovering all kinds of things, and Spain's kind of stuck. They've essentially cut off their right to the ocean. Yeah, there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to go. Or is there? <laughs> so let's enter Christopher Columbus. Well, kind of a crazy man by reputation. 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Do you remember any more than that? No, yeah. that's all I remember. I couldn't even remember the name of the ships. I think it's, <laughs> it's the, like the Nina, the, the Ni- Penta, and the Santa Maria? Or the Pinto? The Pinta? The, pin- the Pinta? Pinta? It's not like Pinta, pinta beans? <laughs> Like, like Pinta. I don't know what that means. And I don't either. And Santa Maria. Yes. Um, so Columbus comes to town, like he's from Italy. He's been hanging out in Portugal, but he's kind of going on about this idea that he has, like, let's just go West. You know, I've been reading all this, like stuff from Ptolemy and all these ancient Greek writings. And I think that we can find some land over there. Like, I think that's another way to Asia because remember They're at war with the Ottomans. Like, there's no way through Europe to Asia. So their trade has been totally cut off. So they need to find another way to get to Asia. And Columbus is saying, you can just sail on the ocean. But he's also not a wealthy man. He's self-taught. He's got this kind of incomplete grasp of classical learning that he's using to, like, back up his claims. And so these better-learned nobles and monarchs are kind of laughing, right? Like, they're like, you kind of don't really know what you're talking about. This can't be true. But Isabella is intrigued. So she decides, after years of stringing him along, that she's going to back his play. But there's kind of a problem because, at this time, nobody really likes to sail for more than a day without seeing the coast. So Hmm. he's saying, okay, guys, we're going to go sail for a while and see what we see. (laughs) Get in a boat. We may come back. We don't know. Yeah. So this is truly a leap of faith. 
right, on her part, and incredibly forward-thinking. Like, Ferdinand's barely showing any interest in the project, and Isabella, she, though, understands what Columbus is actually offering if he were to be successful. If he succeeds, and if he succeeds under her sponsorship, then Castile can lay claim to anything that he finds. And, as I said before, they, this is pretty much their only option. So his voyage, she agrees to sponsor, and it's going to be a purely Castilian endeavor. Aragon has no claim to any of this. In fact, she has the crew. It's almost entirely Castilian, except for a handful of like Italians and maybe like a Portuguese guy. Um, but no one's from Aragon. It's only like 90 people. And so she also only commissions three ships. Like this is a fairly small expedition considering what they were going to do. Yeah, it's kind of like, uh, maybe. Yeah, and she's also pretty <laughs> clever about how she pays for it. Like, she doesn't actually really put any money down on the table. So she orders this town of Palos to provide two of the ships, and it's sort of this payment of a fine that they had to pay to the crown. And the third is actually paid for by the sale of indulgences in this other town, Extremadura. Which everybody had to buy, otherwise they'd get hauled before the Inquisition. Exactly, and (laughs) And it's a poor district where, in fact, many of the sailors came from. But it's also ironic in that case because, remember, we're kind of on the precipice of this Reformation and Renaissance, and the sale of indulgences is something that some of these people really had a problem with. So I thought it was interesting that that was used to finance Columbus's journey. (laughs) Although ultimately, like, it wasn't that much. It was three ships, 90 men. But, you know, cash is still short. They've had this extended war with Granada, so Isabella's got to be a bit creative of how to fund this. So Columbus and his ships, they leave on August 3rd, 1492, and by October 12th, they find land, which is good because Hmm. by this point, the sailors are getting a little freaked out. They're like, dude, it's been three months. We haven't found land. Like, are we about to die? (laughs) And not to get too into it, but Columbus was an enthusiastic navigator, but not so much a leader of men. Yeah, they were practically mutiny. Yes. Well, right? in fact, one of his ships sails away when they get to the New World. And then the Santa Maria, I think, is like sunk like and destroyed. So then they have to like wait for this other ship to like come back. And then only two of them end up sailing back to Spain. They also leave a few behind because there's not room now for everyone. And that's a whole other story. But like I said, he's not a leader of men. But they do return to Spain. And he comes back. He reports his discovery which despite increasing evidence and like what everybody kind of figures out over the years, he continues to insist as being islands off the coast of India, which is why... And now this is, he's he's been there now, right? Yes. And I mean, what was it? Essentially, it was like the Caribbean? Yes, it was the Caribbean. And they're not really sure exactly which island he landed on. Um, and also after a few years, like all the native populations had been totally wiped out. But he's insisting... Hi, we're here. Have some smallpox. Yes. Um, he's insisting that these islands are right off the coast of Asia and everybody else is kind of like, I don't know, man. (laughs) These people don't really seem like they know what anything is, you know? Also, I'm glad you mentioned smallpox because we're not really going to get into it, but I did not know that actually some new theories hold that syphilis was possibly brought back from the New World. And upon his return from the New World, Columbus and his men, like, syphilis spread like wildfire through Europe. So, interesting side note. They Mm. might possibly have brought that back. But everybody liked to say it came from everywhere else, right? Like, it was, like, the French disease, the the Neapolitan disease, all kinds of things. Anyway. Don't don't say we never gave you anything. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) So, 
But remember how the Portuguese had been kind of in a tangle about their their rights to exploration. Well, it's because they were really good at navigating the ocean and they had a really, like a state-sponsored interest in it. And in fact, before he went to Spain, Columbus had first tried to convince the Portuguese of this plan, but they turned him down. But when he came back and was successful, they claimed that they'd been duped by Columbus and the Castilians and they, like some of this claim belonged to them. Because um, it's possible Columbus might have stolen some navigational materials, you know, like he's not a stand-up guy. So in 1494, a couple years after Columbus returns, the Treaty of Tordesillas, maybe? It effectively divides all these newly discovered lands between Spain and Portugal. All of it. Nobody else. The whole rest of the world. Yeah. Everything <laughs> west of Europe belongs to Spain and Portugal. And this is after, you know, like I said, Pope Alexander VI was very into this idea of exploration as well. And when he hears the news of Columbus's discovery, you know, Isabella like almost immediately writes him and tells him what happens. And he grants her ownership of all of this. Now she has to give half of it to Portugal when they get wind of this, but it actually works out pretty well because she's fairly clever about how she marries off her children. So Spain gets that back. I love this. The Pope is like, oh, you found a new world? You may have it. obviously Catholic. (laughs) Well, actually, and he gives it to her. And then in the new world, you know, people are relating this story to some of the natives a few years later. And they're like, they cannot grasp this idea that this one man would be seen as having enough power that he could just like give the world to someone. And so they're like, oh, the Pope must have been drunk. (laughs) Which given who he was, he very might possibly have been. I love that they're like supposedly so simple and even they can recognize how ridiculous the narcissism this is in that. Yes. That's crazy. Yes. But you know, the Pope was all for this because he and Isabella shared this idea that the new world was ripe for spreading the good gospel, right? Like this is a place where the church can thrive and they can convert everybody into Catholics. Um, and so he basically gives her the world to populate in the Castilian style. So the Spanish waste no time. Like almost immediately she sponsors a bunch of more voyages. After 1493, like countless Spanish voyages go out and they set about settling this new world. And actually, so Spain and Portugal are really into this and it's only a couple, like not a couple years, like a while later that France and England want to get on the action. And by the time they get there, they just get the leftovers that Spain and Portugal already decided weren't worth their time. So, Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I mean, I know like in the U.S., some of the oldest buildings are the spanish missions yes in florida and in florida yeah it's kind of because they discovered the caribbean and then they just went south to like central america discovered panama eventually discovered that panama's not that wide and you can find a whole other ocean over there and um, the portuguese went down to brazil you know they basically discovered these islands and then headed south and west they didn't really i think Florida was probably about as north as the Spanish went at this time. Yeah, and then they said, oh, you, you guys can have that land up there. We don't really we don't want, want that. On it. Yeah, we got enough <laughs> down here. And then the here. French got Canada. <laughs> yeah. The result of this, though, is that these discoveries and their subsequent colonization make Spain the wealthiest and most powerful nation in the world for the next two centuries. Like... Everybody else is so slow to get in on this that Spain basically just gets a running head start and they profit enormously from this. 
I must say, though, at great cost to Native life and also eventually exported a few ideas of the Inquisition there, so maybe not everybody was happy about this, but the coffers of Spain are certainly happy about this. Mm. So, and this is all a result of Isabella. I mean, this is her solo mission. Ferdinand completely doesn't care about this. She locks that down for Spain, and it it pays off. All he's doing is haggling with Henry VII over a dowry. Okay, Ferdinand is off having countless affairs, meddling around in Aragon, and basically being useless. I mean, I cannot stress enough how little he had to do with so much of this. I mean, obviously he's there, right? Like, he wants to be at the party, but and publicly he was considered to be in charge, but it's pretty evident that he wasn't. And some of that comes to bear and what we'll talk about happens after 1492. So as we talked about with Henry VIII, succession is a huge deal for many of these families, right? And that's no different in Spain. Isabella and Ferdinand are extremely concerned about their own succession. They have four daughters and one son. They've got basically the entire female marriage market of Europe, and they've got one heir to the throne that's kind of a big catch himself. So they've got some work to do to link Spain to the rest of Europe. And there's some reasons to do some of this. You know, the Ottomans are essentially besieging mostly Southern Europe and Eastern Europe. And the rest of Europe, they're not really that affected and they don't really care. You know, they repeatedly wrote to France and England for assistance. And, well, Henry VII is the miser, so he's not sending any financial assistance. I think at one point, the French king decides to get involved, but that's really a cover so that he can invade Naples. It's the whole thing. Nobody really cares. So Isabella is hoping that if she can link her children to some of these northern kingdoms, then maybe they can bring them into the fight. And she does pretty well. So the coup of this entire scenario is this double engagement that she negotiates with the Habsburgs and Burgundy. So The Habsburgs, we've talked about before, they at this point are the family in charge of the Holy Roman Empire. They've got that massive wealth and lands, and also by marriage, they are now tied in with the House of Burgundy. So it's a great catch. Juan, their son, is going to marry Margaret of Austria, and then Juana, their daughter, is going to marry Margaret's brother, Philip I. Their eldest daughter, Isabella, is married to King Manuel of Portugal, so they're gonna secure peace closer to home. And then eventually she actually dies in childbirth. And so her younger sister, Maria, ends up marrying Manuel as well. And then... Interestingly, I just want to bring it back. They had to get a papal dispensation. And that was used as an example of, it's totally fine to marry your brother's widow for Henry VIII. Yes. And then finally, the youngest daughter, Catherine, as we've previously mentioned, is married to first Arthur of Wales and then ultimately Henry VIII. And like I said, in part, Isabella really pursued that alliance to try to bring the English crown into the fight against the Ottomans, although I don't really think anything ever came of that. I was wondering what was in it for her, because I know that they were trying to keep England away from France. They didn't want a French alliance for England. But other than that, I always wondered what was in it for But there was a little bit of of an incentive for this as well. And also, I mean... not to disparage Catherine, but she is the youngest daughter of, in this family. So her, her worth is maybe not as high as, say, Isabella. And, you know, I think it's telling that um, her mother sends her off to England, which at the time is considered to be a lesser kingdom in Europe. However, 
This is a rough time for staying alive. Juan dies shortly after his marriage to Margaret. She miscarries their child after his death. Um, Isabella dies in childbirth. Her baby dies a few years after that. So there are no heirs left from either of these Habsburg alliances, or sorry, from this Habsburg alliance with uh, Juan or the Portuguese alliance. And so this means that the succession of the Spanish kingdoms ultimately is going to pass to Juana and Philip and their heirs. Philip is also a Habsburg? Philip is is a Habsburg and heir to the Habsburg throne. His gotcha. grandfather? No, father is Maximilian. Okay. We'll probably talk about him more at some time. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because we're going to talk about keep it all straight. Yeah. So um, after her, the deaths of her two eldest children, Isabella noticeably declines. Um, she's just heartbroken over Juan and Isabella's death. And these are her first two eldest children. Both of their heirs die as well. I mean, she's just decimated by this. And so she officially withdraws from governmental affairs in September 1504. And she actually dies later that year in November she orders that in her will that the succession is going to go to Juana as the next remain re- surviving child of herself and Ferdinand, or if Juana is unable to rule, Ferdinand can rule in her stead as a regent for Juana's eldest son, Charles. We have talked about him before, Charles I. We will talk about him as him again. Charles V, you mean? Charles I of Spain. Oh, okay. But he's Charles five of of holy roman empire yeah sorry it gets confusing (laughs) i'm talking about him as charles the first in this case because we are talking about spain i didn't you were absolutely right though i didn't even realize i had done that she also stipulates in her will that maria and catherine's dowries be paid in full which we do know they weren't as ferdinand haggled endlessly with henry the seventh over catherine's dowry and she also asked that ferdinand not remarry in order to protect the succession because if he were to remarry and have a son, then that would throw it all off. Um, he did remarry because he's such an upstanding what a loser. Man. I know. <laughs> so his solo rule after the death of Isabella as regent for Charles is much less successful. Um, he actually shoves Juana out of the way. She's widely declared to be unstable, insane. I mean, she. We'll talk about her at some point, probably when we talk about Charles, maybe, but she suffered from an abusive marriage, and in the outcome of that was that she was widely considered to be mentally unstable. I was just going to say, wasn't she insane? And then she I realized wasn't. that she probably wasn't, and it was all just a way to get her out of the yes, way. Yes, absolutely. And Ferdinand was very much a part of that. He also did remarry to this woman, Germaine of Foix. I don't know. It's French. Germaine of Sounds Foix. right. Sure. Um, Sounds good to me. So he creates this alliance with France through her. She's the niece of Louis Twelfth. They have a child who dies, though. So this ensures that the crown of Aragon is going to remain both united with Castile and passed to Charles. Um, and then Ferdinand dies on January 23rd, 1516. So, Well, you'd almost think that he didn't want that to happen. It almost seems as though he wanted Aragon to stay its own separate entity. Well, I mean, this wasn't the plan, right? I mean, it goes to Charles by accident. If we look at this history of this family, everybody ends up ruling on this throne who is never like, widely considered to have a shot at it. And Charles is no different. Like, he has two elder 
um, cousins that should have been born or lived to be heir. And, um, you know, the, the only reason that the heir doesn't, or the crown doesn't go to Portugal is because when Manuel remarries and he marries Maria, she's younger than Juana. So in the line of succession, he's out of the running. But I don't think the plan was ever that the crowns of Castile and Aragon were going to wind up in the hands of the Habsburgs, right? Like Juana is the third child. There are two elder ch children above her whose heirs would stand to be in line for the throne above any of her offspring. It's just, it's a risky time to be born. It's just kind of interesting because I mean, you presumably he'd be fine if it was going to his son, but yeah, it's almost like he views the women once they once they go marry into these royal families are not part of the family anymore, and he's kind of pissed. Well, that's pretty much how it I, was considered at the time. You were now part of your husband's family, and these children were not Spanish. It's just interesting. Yeah, um, but that's not the way that it went, and I think we're going to talk about Charles, right? Yeah, yeah, we're going to do him next. Yeah. And we really should because there's a whole bunch of talk about family drama. Whew. His parents, man. But okay, so Isabella and Ferdinand, though, they rule for a while. You know, they're very young when they take their thrones. Um, and their impact for Spain is huge. I mean, through Juana and Catherine, their influence spreads to the rest of Europe. But at home, I mean, they've set this inquisition in motion. They've introduced Spain to the new world. They've really got the gears going to make Spain successful for a very long time. And this personal union of their two crowns is going to continue at least for another generation. I mean, they're not... Very interesting. I don't want to say they're like great people. Like they did a lot of bad things, but certainly successful in their time. I think they were strong rulers. Yes. Which is... Which is what, you know, they're what we're talking about here. And we're looking at it, you know, through the modern lens. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe they did an inquisition. But it's not like, I mean, we just, I feel like we do things like that. We just couch them differently. They look the same. Well, if you want to um, put it contemporary, I mean, we're doing a lot of things in fear of, you know, Islam invading our own country. So I think people, rulers do a lot of things out of fear. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's just kind of interesting to learn a little bit more about these guys. Because I think, you know, if you look at Catherine of Aragon, she probably wanted her marriage to look a lot like her parents' marriage. Yes. And for a long time, it did. Yeah. And she, um, she, she wanted had, her you know, life She had a lot to, of power for a queen consort. Right. And she really modeled herself after her mother. Um, because, you know, Isabella is this devout Christian woman with a successful you know, maybe not loving marriage, but certainly successful. So, well, that was fun. It was fun to go to another. It really was. Kingdom. I mean, it's a little harder to pronounce things, but <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> I don't, we don't always do that great. Well, at least you had a little bit of <laughs> Spanish <English>. knowledge. <laughs> uh, those French words are still tripping me up, though. Okay, so we're going to talk about Charles the first slash fifth next time. Yes. Maybe are we finally going to answer this question about what is the Holy Roman Empire? <laughs> Hopefully. No promises. <laughs> That's the plan. Yeah. And then I think we'll also probably do Francis the first. The idea was to do all the kind of periphery monarchs who came in and out of our story when we were talking about Henry VIII. Yeah, we should. He really didn't have a, a starring role this week, but I think he'll come back. So... He definitely had more dealings with Charles. Yeah. yeah. 
they're all they're all in each other's business yep all right well i'll talk to you next time yep and uh find us on instagram email us we'd love to hear from you as always we still don't have an email oh my gosh <laughs> Allie. you can instagram us tweet at yeah. us we'll answer review Yell us at Allie on iTunes. to set up an email tell me to set up an email <laughs> maybe i'll remember to do it <laughs> All right. right. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. MonarchCast is produced by me, Allie. And me, Claire. And our logo is by Ryan Cooney. If you like our episodes and want to give us a shout out, please rate or review us on iTunes or Google Play or whatever your preferred method of podcast listening is. We really appreciate it.